Yeah, this time zone thing. It's annoying. I know, right? Why do we have that round earth thing? I don't know. <laughs> Hosting a bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, the leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Code Climate automated code reviews ensure that your projects stay on track. Fix and find quality and security issues in your Ruby code sooner. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 135 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning, everyone. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and I just want to let you know I'm going to do Rails Ramp Up again. Sign up by the beginning of the year. I'm doing a 30% discount, and I will probably never do that again. So if you want in, get it now. We also have a special guest, and that's Ilya Grigorik. Hey, everyone. Glad to be here. Hey, welcome to the show. I asked you before the show, and I still probably slaughtered your name. No, that was was good. That was right. Yay! (laughs) So since you haven't been on the show before, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. So nowadays, I guess I, I play the role of a internet plumber at Google. I guess that's the unofficial title. Internet plumber. Do, do, I love do you that. have a really cool tool belt to wear? Yeah, yeah, we're wear one all the time. Okay. Uh, maybe the more official title is web performance engineer, developer advocate, some mix of those two. Uh, which is to say that uh, primarily I work on making the internet fast, which is includes things like better and faster protocols, browser optimization, so things like how to make Google Chrome faster, and then also educating developers on best practices around how do we build fast sites, fast apps, and all the other stuff in between. Um, so that's kind of the gist of it. We have a lot of listeners that may choose to email you when the internet is slow. I'm just saying. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, but then he has to go fix the internet commode. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's really cool, actually. It's, I mean, I've seen lots of posts of things you're working on and stuff and, and making, you know, a lot of effort into making sites performant and stuff. It's really cool stuff. Yeah, it's definitely a fun topic and uh, an area that never exhausts itself. There's always something else to fix. There's always more things to do. Right. That's for sure. So we had you on because we keep hearing about this HTTP 2.0 uh, change. Can you tell us uh, what started all this? Sure. So uh, maybe before we get to HTTP 2, there's a, actually a little bit of history that may help. Like, let's rewind history, maybe actually 15 years. Once upon uh, a time. Yeah, That's once upon right. a time. <laughs> tell so us the bedtime story. Circa 1993, right? We have kind of the first HTTP 0.9, where, like, this is uh, right now, Minimal viable product is all the rage. Well, Tim Berners-Lee was doing that in spades back in the day, right? Um, if you look at the actual protocol for HTTP, it was literally like two words. It was get followed by the resource name. You hit enter and then you got your resource. And that was like, that was the beginning. That was, 
<laughs> hey, I think we should, we should try this. Uh, it may it may work. It may be interesting. And turns out it did work, and it did become interesting. And then we kind of grafted a lot of things onto that sense. So kind of from those two words. And by the way, it's kind of a cool hack, an interesting thing to try. I think Apache and Nginx both still support HP 0.9. So if you actually just open up like a telnet session to your server and just type in get slash whatever the name of your page, nothing else, just hit enter, and you should actually get a page back. So they still speak that protocol. Wow, that sounds a lot like Gopher. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, so, did, did people remember Gopher still? I remember it, but I don't think I ever knew the protocol. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure what it is. Oh, Gopher is the text-based predecessor to the web. And, you know, for a couple years before HTTP and the, you know, what we think of as the web developed, there were um, a bunch of sites that were running this Gopher protocol that basically, you know, let you put a hierarchical file system online and have it be accessible. And, you know, there was no, you know, visual component to it, there, you know, except for just, you know, hierarchical text. I mean, it was used largely by universities for academic storage, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But there were a lot of hobbyists who put up uh, their content using Gopher too. Anyway, enough about Gopher, but it was just like, it was a very simple protocol and, you know, you interacted with it over a text terminal. So you could like, you know, tell that in and text and do text, you know, or you could use one of the apps that, you know, bundled it all up and let you browse like you were in the finder. I used to go to my public library and get on a terminal and uh, access Gopher. <laughs> yeah, well, so I wonder how much ASCII art went across that. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like old BBSs. Okay, okay so back to HTTP 2.0. Yeah, so that, that's actually very similar to point nine, right? HTTP point nine, because there's, there's literally just hypertext, hence the name hypertext transfer okay. protocol. There's no images, there's no nothing. Uh, so that's, I guess, the big innovation there was that we added this hyperlink context and you can just navigate across different objects. So fast forward a little bit, right? Like, uh, let's say 1995, uh, we realized that, hey, this is actually pretty cool. Let's add a bunch of other things. Like, we'd actually like to have images, maybe. Uh, we actually had some browsers come out around that time and we started adding new things. Images, uh, after that came, you know, style sheets and other types of resources. So before you know it, we kind of added a lot more into the HTTP protocol itself. So now you could do things like, well, here's the date when I generated this resource. Here is the uh, the cache key for it or, you know, when it should expire. Here's the content type that I'm serving because now we're serving multiple file types over this, that same connection. And just on and on and on, we just kept adding uh, a lot of these things. And one thing that, that a lot of people don't realize is that HTTP 1.0 is not actually an official standard. Uh, it was basically just an initiative for uh, IETF to say, like, hey, let's look around at all the crazy things that people are doing, pick the most popular ones, and just document them, because that's basically all that it was. Uh, there's <laughs> different servers coming around, uh, there's different different implementations of browsers, and they're all just, like, experimenting on completely wild, you know, wild stuff. So uh, they just picked the stuff that kind of stuck around and just documented it. And that was around, I think, 1997 that the 1.0 standard, if you will, came out, and it's just documenting what's out there. And then after that, there was another kind of two-year effort, which took that 1.0 and started to add kind of more language around it, so clarifying things like how does HTTP caching work and, and all the rest. And that was published in, I think, late 1999 or, or somewhere in and around that. So basically, since then, uh, the protocol hasn't really changed. 
But uh, as we all know, the web certainly has, right? So imagine or think back to the sites that we saw back in 1999. This is like still the GeoCities era, right? With animated GIFs everywhere, uh, although that seems to be making a comeback. <laughs> green, green tags. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, all that good stuff, right? And of course, now it's just a very different, very different web. We're building not just pages, we're building applications. You know, we have email and docs and all all the crazy stuff, all living in the browser. So the transport really hasn't changed, but the things uh, and how we build them has changed significantly. And basically we're realizing that, hey, we need to, like this is mission critical infrastructure now, performance matters, uh, both kind of financially in terms of we can show that you know, faster load times lead to better re revenue or conversions and, and all the rest. And also just for kind of experiencing the web in a better way where it shouldn't take 10 seconds to load a page on your mobile phone. So what can we do to, to fix that? So uh, HTTP2 is kind of an initiative around that to, to address some of those kind of core limitations within the HTTP protocol. So you mentioned so, performance being one of the major concerns. What are the other major concerns you're trying to get around? Uh, so I guess performance is actually the, the primary one. So one of the interesting things that, uh, before we get to HTTP2, so let's, there's an interim step in there. So around 2008 or so, at Google, we ran a couple of experiments where we basically kind of just set up a lab environment and varied two things. Uh, we picked, I think, a hundred sites, hundred popular sites, and said, "Well, let's let's try and figure out where the bottlenecks are in terms of uh, the actual load times on the pages." And we varied two factors: one was latency, and second one was bandwidth. Right? So you you just kind of fix latency at whatever hundred milliseconds, and then you start with one megabit per second, and then you double that to two, and just see how that affects things. And basically what happens is when you look at the graph with the, uh, when you keep the latency fixed but very bandwidth is that when you go from one to two megabits, you almost get like an, a double improvement in performance. So you, you have the loading time, which is great. It's exactly what you want to see. Uh, you go from two to three, you kind of get a little bit of diminishing returns. It's like 30%. And then uh, unfortunately it kind of gets into that diminishing returns curve very, very quickly. So by the time that you're at five megabits, basically you're looking at uh, like single percentage points in terms of the actual load time improvements. So, the, you know, the takeaway there is, you know, a lot of our ISPs love to sell us bandwidth. It's like, here's 40 megs and 20 megs or whatever, 100 or a gigabit even. Uh, but in reality, at least for loading web pages, it wouldn't actually help you at all or very little, I should say for kind of speeding up browsing the web. It would certainly help downloading large media streams, like you're streaming a movie or something else. But for downloading pages, bandwidth is not no longer an issue for most people. Uh, like an average internet connection in the US is over five megabits now. So, you know, upgrading to a data plan or a provider that gives you more bandwidth is just not gonna give you much. But uh, latency, on the other hand, is much more interesting. Uh, because basically you look at that graph and you see that there's a direct correlation. It's, it's just a linear relationship between uh, the lower the latency, the the faster we load the page. And unfortunately with latency, uh, it's, it's kind of a tricky problem because uh, we have this speed of light thing, which is rather annoying. We haven't figured out how to fix it yet. Uh, you know, I guess a couple of years ago, there Are was... Are you suggesting Google's working on that? I have no idea. I would, you know... Quantum tunneling. I, I, I think quantum tunneling. Spooky networking at a distance. <laughs> you well, should, totally should have said, I can't talk about that. I can't talk about that, yeah. Well, we did have some news from, uh, what was it, CERN a couple of years back where they, they reported that, you know, they, they found 
something that was traveling faster than the speed of light or some experiment, and then they found that it was a faulty cable. Yeah, it was a faulty <laughs> cable. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, so, was, that was the neutrino experiment between Switzerland right. and Italy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, hey, if, so, if somebody solves that, that's great because then I'm my job is done. Like basically, <laughs> the insight there is a lot of our performance problems on the web are due to latency today, and if we can fix that, then that's awesome. I can move on to the next great project. So, <laughs> so how does this affect me using BitTor? I mean, um, helping people back up their files. Uh, well, it doesn't, it doesn't, right? Like, if, if you have sufficient bandwidth, like a couple of megabits, and so let's say you have, whatever, 20 megabit connection, and you're using some portion of that, uh, if you still have some bandwidth left, you know, under the order of a couple of mega, megabits, uh, then you're probably fine. Uh, it may affect you in other ways, like, you know, there's a lot of problems with, uh, things like buffer bloat, where if you're doing kind of BitTorrent or any other large media streaming, playing a video game even, uh, some local routers actually do a pretty poor job of scheduling or buffering too much data, which introduces extra latency and extra delays. So there's a lot of work actually, that's a whole separate topic in the space of buffer bloat and how do we address that. So yeah, so going back to web pages then, how does HTT, I, I, I don't, completely follow how HTTP 2.0 helps, say, our clients or our employers or even ourselves, you know, make our applications appear to load more quickly and things like that. Yep. Okay. So we have this issue, right? So that was no longer kind of the limiting factor. Latency is a problem. And now the question is, why is latency uh, or how does latency affect how we load our pages? And the simple answer there is our pages are getting more and more complex. We put more and more stuff on them. So I think on kind of an average or median page on the web today is nearly a meg in size. And uh, I think over a hundred resources. So this includes JavaScript, CSS, and all kinds of other stuff, right? And now think about kind of the best practices. And I put best practices in air quotes there that we have to do as web developers today. So things like Hey, you have to concatenate your style sheets or JavaScript and all the rest. You have to sprite your images and you have to shard your domains and all that. All of those things are just hacks because there are limitations in HTTP protocol. So HTTP works as kind of completely serial protocol. You make a request, you have to wait until that request is done, right? So if you have a TCP connection open, I request the homepage. I can't actually ask for another thing until the homepage comes back or the content of that comes back. And uh, that turns out to be a problem because most browsers today will allow you to open up to six connections. So ideally, we would only need one, right? Like we just open a connection and we would fetch all the resources in parallel and there'd be no issues. Well, because HTTP, the way it's built, uh, it's completely serial. We have to open multiple connections and most browsers today will actually open up to six. So basically that tells you that you can transfer up to six resources in parallel and we need to get a hundred of them. So you, you kind of create this self-perpetuating problem of do we add more connections? How do we reduce the number of resources on our pages? And it creates work for web developers. So all of these things that I mentioned before, spriting, concatenation, you know, and all the rest that are completely unnecessary in each, in each speed to a world because what it allows us to do is HP2 is not changing how uh, or the semantics of HTTP itself. So you still have headers and kind of all the things that we're familiar with, but it changes how the data is transported on the wire. So with HTTP2, you can't just open a telnet uh, window and kind of type in get resource name. Uh, it's actually a binary framing protocol. And what it allows us to do is kind of partition all of the data streams into little packets. Can so, we get a definition for binary framing? Sure. So as opposed to just a text protocol. So I guess 
let's see, what's what's a good definition of a binary framing? Well, so well, first think, of all, I we're think... talking about going beyond 8-bit ASCII here. <laughs> yes. That's the I'm... binary part. I would like to know the framing part. <laughs> so the I guess the, the, the idea with binary protocol is we can, instead of using plain text, so in, the question is, in a data stream, how do you find the right delimiters? Like, what's the end of stream? What's the end of message? In HTTP 1, that's basically new lines, right? You send a header, you send a new line, you send a header, you send a new line, and then you send two new lines, and then you send the body. And that's how we know that the message is uh, is done. With binary framing, uh, we're basically defining uh, a new set of delimiters, which are just, you know, a specific frame format. Uh, like, you know, every frame will start with this specific sequence of bytes. And then after that sequence of bytes, it'll say, I'm a data frame as opposed to a header frame. And then it'll say, I'm of this length. So then you know exactly how much data you should read from a socket to figure out if you care about that data or not. So it's just a more efficient way to uh, encode the data on the wire. And because we partition this data into kind of these small chunks, it allows us to interleave that data as well. So we can now send a whole lot of requests and get data back uh, that is completely kind of interleaved and, and mixed together. Don't know if that, so that's, that yeah, helps. that's kind of interesting. I think a concern I seem to see from tech people, and and I kind of share this, is that we lose a lot of transparency that way. Do you? How do you feel about that? To to some degree, I mean, to the extent that you can't open a telnet window and just type in get and then you know do something like that. But honestly, how many people do that today? And uh, second of all, you know, we're already using a lot of the same protocols. So if you, for, for example, if you're using TLS, I mean, IP itself, it's binary framed. Uh, there's all these protocols that run below it that you don't have visibility into per se, right? If you just uh, kind of dump it to uh, your terminal, you just need better tooling. So that's why we have things like Wireshark and TCP dump and other things which just analyze that data stream. And nothing stops us from building kind of a little shim that would uh, a command line uh, client that would open up and allow you to type and get, you know, in plain text, and it would just translate it to HTTP2 or to the binary frames that are using HTTP2. So that's not really, I think, uh, a big concern. Uh, an- another win of actually going to this sort of formatting is while it's easy for us to understand the HTTP protocol kind of in plain text for humans to crack it, it's actually harder to parse. Uh, surprisingly, right? Like building an HTTP one parser is surprisingly hard. <laughs> it it feels very simple at first when you start it, and then you discover all kinds of interesting and annoying edge cases. So going to a binary training protocol is actually much easier because when you write it, it's just like, okay, I saw these two bytes. I know I'm getting a frame. I know the length of the frame, so I know exactly how much data I need to read, and I know the type of it. It just makes impl- implementing this a heck of a lot easier. And you know, I, I say that as uh, someone who's had experience building both an HTTP one Ruby client and also working with HTTP two and build, building a parser for it. It's just so much easier once you have binary framing because you basically have this contract for how everything should look on the wire. You know, um, we're talking about some of the drawbacks of HTTP one, but I think it's hard to deny that HTTP one uh, has been really, really, really successful as a protocol. You know, and that's kind of the dream of. A protocol designer. Do you have any insights into, I mean, before we get into like all the things that 2.0 improves, do you have any insights into what made HTTP, what, what were the right decisions that they made? What, what made HTTP one such a successful protocol from a design standpoint? 
Yeah, that's that, that's an interesting question. So I do think that the, that simplicity of it at the beginning was actually important, right? So it was not over-engineered. Uh, it was just like, here's the simplest thing that could work, and let's let's try it. And I think yeah. that's fine. I mean, that, that that's exactly that that's part of it. Um, I I don't think the protocol itself was what made you know the web. Um, there's also the fact that the web was actually incredibly useful, and it just happened to run over this protocol. So there's kind of there's two things in there, right? So find a good use case for it. And also, right, but I mean, like, you know, we saw so many other things being built on it that you, you wouldn't have expected to use HTTP, but they did anyway. A lot, you know, beyond just the the web itself. And so it's, I, web, I find that web interesting. Dev. Web dev. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think it kind of feeds in itself, right? Because the more clients you have, the more applications you'll have. Like, it's you, you can talk to your toaster over HTTP today. So that's... Uh, that's that's pretty awesome, and so I, there's definitely a lot to be said for just a simple text-based protocol that allowed a lot of people to experiment with the stuff initially. It's just very simple to kind of get a demo up and running. Mm-hmm. But now you're saying we have to grow up and use the binary stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, it, it's it's grown to a point where you know it's it's mission critical, basically infrastructure. Everything runs not well, not everything, but. Significant portions of everything we work on today on the internet runs on over HTTP, and uh, you know, as developers, we just see a lot of issues in terms of like we can't do a lot of the things that we want with HTTP one uh, performance wise, and just need to address those. And it's, just, it's interesting to me though that that I mean HTTP one it arose in a time of many binary framing protocols. I mean, you know, the conventional wisdom was, was of course, a text-based format is way too verbose, it's, it's not efficient enough, and people just had oodles of problems with those binary protocols. I mean, whether it was Unix RPC, or whether it was uh, Corba, or, you know, any of a number of, of other protocols which have more or less fallen by the wayside at this point. I mean, um, NFS. These, yeah, NFS is a great example. These text-based protocols, including HTTP, but also including SMTP and a few others, just kind of stomped all over those um, with, I don't know, you know, their approachability, uh, et cetera, you know, ag- again, against the conventional wisdom that binary framing was better. Yeah, I, maybe I wouldn't pose it as directly as like your binary versus text, because, uh, you know, if you look at other layers of the stack, TLS, right, so all of our HTTPS traffic, I mean, that's binary framed. IP, right, but I mean, I, I'm, framed, I'm talking so. entirely, yeah, I mean, I am talking about the the application level, I'm not talking about the the transport level so much. Are you saying that the that what used to be the application level now needs to be pushed down to the transport level? Uh, let's see. Maybe I'm not 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 sure that it I'll sounds that sounds kind of like that that sounds kind of like what you're saying. I mean, because HTTP used to be considered you know application level if you look at the network layer cake, but and you know if you wanted to do multiplexing, well that was the domain of TCP or some other thing at the transport level. And so it sounds like you're kind of pushing HTTP down into the transport layer, whereas it used to be, you know, this application, text-based application protocol on top of lower binary transport layers. Yeah, I guess the kind of the layer cake is kind of confusing at this point, right? Because what's an application protocol? What's a transport protocol at, at this point? Um, I think that's, that's partially true. Maybe. Kind of the, the observation to make is, you know, we started with something very simple. It proved its worth. Uh, we're finding that we're pushing more and more data over these protocols. You know, if you actually look, you know, as an interesting point, uh, we use HTTP over the public web. But, you know, whenever you walk in into kind of any large organization and you look at what do you use on the inside to communicate between all of your services, it's 
most of the time it's not HTTP, primarily because of performance and a few other concerns, because, you know, they have to invent basically their own protocol, whether that's something like Stubby. I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, we see large movements like SOA, you know, service-oriented architecture and things like that. And I think that the kind of default there seems to be HTTP because it's so well-known, it's so easy to set up, and Genetics is running on everything. I mean, am I wrong in that? Well, so if you look at the large, so SOA as itself as an architecture uh, is independent of HTTP, right? Nobody said that it has to be over HTTP. So, for example, yeah, but practically it practically it is HTTP. Uh, I'm not sure. At large, a lot of I mean, large organizations. That's, that's what they said about every protocol. It was like, well, this is actually transport independent, but well, practically so I, I it was s- all over one transport. Right. So let's look at some examples that at least I'm aware of. Um, you know, within Google, uh, we have our own protocol called Stubby, which is basically we start with an HTTP connection and we upgrade it to this other form of kind of binary framing protocol. Facebook, of course, invented their own Thrift. Twitter is using uh, their own, although I, I believe they're actually migrating to HTTP2. Uh, so that's great. And there's, you know, a lot of other kind of just binary or uh, transfer protocols. Uh, okay, so you're not talking about you're not talking about like traditional enterprises. You're talking about service providers that have that have their own internal plumbing to provide a, a right. massively scaled service. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So internally, you you'll still have your kind of SOA architecture, right, where you have different services and all the rest. Uh, but the protocol over which you communicate is just practically, oftentimes, some something other than HTTP, just because it introduces a lot of overhead, unnecessary overhead. I think I, I understand what you're saying. I'm not sure I would agree with the oftentimes simply because I think you're referring to a kind of a pretty small subset of companies that are, as, as I said, you know, they're offering a massively scaled service. Yeah, I think you're, I, I, I think like your average enterprise is not going to use anything like that. Like, for example, Google, you know, in, in more recent years has said, like, um, you know, well, Python doesn't really scale to our particular level of needs. But the truth is, you have to get to Google's particular level of needs before Python stops scaling to that level, right? It's kind of the, it seems like that's the, the top of the top. You know, that's the problems, you know, Google, Twitter, Facebook, that's a massive amount of content that I do not think the average, you know, website application has. And, that's, I think, what Hadi's trying to say. Yeah, fair enough. And I'm, I'm not trying to knock on HTTP, right? Like, it, as, as we said earlier, it's an extremely successful protocol. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, I've done a lot of work with it in the past. And the idea is, you know, that we can just make it better. So that, that's kind of the, the goal of the project. Yeah, I mean, if, if I push back a little, it's, it's only because I just wonder, are the improvements coming solely from the perspective of a Google or a Facebook, or are they also... You know, coming from from the perspective of the hundreds of thousands of people developing smaller applications and websites. Yeah, so I think it's it's the latter, uh, which is to say, the the primary objective here is to actually make the browsers faster. So you know, if you open a web page over HTTP two, uh, it should load faster, and that's one kind of population that will benefit from it. And the second one is actually developers. We want to make developing web applications easier. You shouldn't have to worry about things like spriting and concatenating files and doing all this you know, domain sharding and all this other mess, which is just completely unnecessary and actually makes performance worse in many cases because each one of those 
has negative repercussions. You know, things like, let's say, uh, concatenating your style sheets or JavaScript. Uh, why do we do that? Uh, well, we do that because we want to reduce the number of requests because we have this uh, connection limit with HTTP 1. Uh, but the downside then is, let's say you've actually Rails does this, you can concatenate all of your CSS into one giant bundle, right? Great. We reduce the number of requests. We can download it faster. Awesome. Then you go in and your, or your designer changes one line, right? From whatever the background color from blue to red. And now you have to download the entire bundle, right? You have to invalidate the entire file and you need to download the whole thing. Well, chances are, if you're doing kind of sound software development today, you already have things split into modules. Like here is my base CSS. Here's my other page CSS. Here are my JavaScript modules. And there's no reason why we need to kind of concatenate those into one giant bundle and invalidate it, invalidate it on every request. You know, this, this is something that we've automated to some degree, uh, but it's unnecessary. And it actually slows down the browser too, like in kind of in unexpected ways. We recently realized that like serving these large JavaScript files actually hurts your performance because we can't execute the JavaScript until we get the entire file. So if you actually split it into a bunch of smaller chunks, it actually allows us to execute them incrementally kind of um, one chunk at a time, and that makes your site faster. Same thing for CSS, kind of splitting all that stuff. And, you know, this may sound trivial, but uh, in practice, it's actually a giant pain for a lot of uh, applications. Like, I know that the Gmail team has spent an enormous amount of time uh, trying to figure out how do we deliver kind of these big JavaScript bundles whenever we update it. Like, they push updates almost daily. And that means, you know, if, if they're not smart about it, they would have to invalidate like half a meg of JavaScript every single time, which is a huge problem, especially on uh, mobile clients or for mobile clients. So they do all kinds of tricks to try and work around that, uh, around that where they shouldn't. And we shouldn't have to worry about those things. Same thing for image spriting, right? Like when was the last time you talked to a web designer who actually understood what, what, what spriting is and why they should do it and why they should care? Uh, yeah, that always struck me as a horrible hack. Yeah, and the, sorry, and so, a horrible clue. It, it it does not. It shouldn't be elevated to the level of hack. Well, it is a hack. I would actually call it a hack, and it's a terrible one too. Because the, the other downside to it is, first of all, it's a pain in the, in, in the ass to manage. But second, it actually costs a lot in terms of memory on on the browser, right? So let's say it's this giant sprite, uh, whatever, thousand by thousand, or maybe something smaller. You have to decode the entire image, which actually occupies a lot of memory, and perhaps you're just using like a little tiny icon from it, right? So that's that's an issue, and those icons can only be displayed once the entire image is downloaded. So there's like you, you add all of these small things up, and you uh, quickly realize that it's just a burden on the developers to kind of manage this, and most of the time they actually get it wrong. So uh, just just to be super clear, there, I I think I see what you're saying about. You know, these large JavaScript files are large images of uh, sprites and things. They're heavy resources on the browser and therefore a larger burden on the browser than, you know, if it had smaller resources that it can manage in a smarter way. I get that. But a couple of times you've said that it actually makes things slower. And I think you mean in a perfect world with zero latency, right? That what we're actually doing is we're trading off that problem because it turns out that latency in our current setup is a worse problem, right? So the problem is definitely worse the higher the latency, right? Because you basically end up spending more time. But even with kind of your average connection speed today in the US, which is roughly 16 milliseconds, uh, it is, we still see it as a problem 
uh, even today. So you know, as a practical example, uh, one of the projects at Google uh, that we have is called PageSpeed, which is kind of this automated web performance optimization thing. It just runs on your server and then it'll concatenate files and all the rest, kind of you know, what the Rails pipeline does at build time. It does that when the assets are served on the server. And well, one of the things we learned uh, was that previously we would just concatenate all the JavaScript and CSS, and uh, that actually hurt performance. We now split everything into, at most, I think, 50 kilobyte uh, bundles. So if you serve a file that's 80 kilobytes, we just won't even touch that. And that's today on current connections with HTTP 1. So you know, now that we got everybody to sprite their images and concatenate all the files, uh, we need to let everybody know that they need to undo that. <laughs> that seems so, really, really weird to me, though. Like, I mean, everything has been moving in that direction, and you're saying, like, our data on that's just wrong? Like, it's not faster? Yeah, so part of it is, you know, the connectivity profiles are also changing, right? So when we first started kind of advocating for those sorts of changes back in whatever it was, 2005, 2007, when the stuff started showing up, the connection speeds were different. You know, we're primarily maybe DSL. It's kind of like state of the art. Now we're getting, uh, and bandwidth was really an issue there. So you spend more time just downloading resources. Now that bandwidth is much less of an issue, uh, latency is, is the problem. And because of that, kind of these you know, best practices in air quotes are changing. And with HTTP2, you actually don't have to do that at all. And in fact, some of those things will actually hurt your performance. So when do we actually get to start seeing HTTP2? When does it start solving some of these problems for us? Yep, yep. So... You can actually play with it today. So when I was talking about that experiment that Google did back in 2008, that actually prompted another project uh, called Speedy. And the idea there was, uh, well, let's try and experiment with this thing. Let's try and build a new protocol in, in Chrome at the time and see if we actually get any uh, performance benefits from it. And turns out that it did. And kind of two years after the project started, or three years, Firefox adopted it, uh, Opera had it installed, you know, Facebook and Twitter enabled it on their sites and a whole lot, a lot of other sites as well. And it was kind of becoming like this new de facto protocol. Uh, and at that point, uh, we kind of took it to the IETF and the IETF started a new initiative around HTTP2, uh, which, you know, went through kind of a round of proposals. And basically what happened was, uh, this version of Speedy at that time, which was Speedy version 2, was adopted as kind of a starting point for HTTP2 protocol. And those two things have been evolving, uh, evolving in parallel. So the, there's no, the HTTP2 protocol itself is not yet ready in terms of like getting it out in production. But Speedy is the experimental version, if you will, and that is running in production. And basically the way that works is uh, the HTTP working group has uh, kind of these interim meetings, you know, every couple of months, every quarter or so. And, uh, we just sync up and talk about, um, you know, here are the things that we were thinking about. You know, we, we tried them, we prototyped them in speedy. Here's what we learned. And, uh, let's try the next iteration. Let's tweak it in this way and let's see if that helps. Uh, you know, the, let's change these spring flags or let's add this other new feature. And uh, th that kind of co-evolution of the two protocols has actually helped quite a bit because the best way to make decisions is based on data. And we can do that because we can just kind of build it into Chrome or Firefox or even IE now supports uh, Speedy and kind of try these ideas and then feed them back into HTTP2. So 
Long story short, you can get most of the benefits of what each pizza will deliver today if you just configure Speedy on your server. Uh, things like there's modules for Apache, Nginx, and kind of most most of the other popular backends that will do Speedy, and uh, most browsers support it today. And sometime in 2014, uh, fingers crossed, uh, we'll actually get uh, the official HTTP2 spec, at which point we'll just kind of deprecate Speedy and just rename it to be HTTP2.0. So, so it should be a pretty seamless transition. So is this more focused than around the server being able to support HTTP2? And the reason I ask is because a lot of these best practices, you know, we've been talking about some of the limitations of HTTP and the browser only allowing you, you know, six outbound connections to go grab JavaScript or image files. So are we going to go into this uh, kind of limbo state where some browsers support HTTP2 and other browsers support HTTP 1.1? And so the best practices for one hurt you on the other? Yeah, yeah. So that, that that's that's one of the kind of interesting, perhaps gotchas. So first of all, you know, any application that's delivered over HTTP one will work over HTTP two. Like there, there's nothing changing there. The semantics are all the same. Uh, it could be the case that you know certain optimizations uh, that you've done for HTTP one point one will actually hurt HTTP two two point zero. And when I say hurt, in practice, at least from what I've seen today, it doesn't mean that your site is actually going to be slower. It's just that it won't be any better. Than HTTP one, uh, so you you may not see that much of a benefit in terms of performance, but that's fine because then you know you can kind of tweak your implementation and adjust from there. The question is how do you go about doing that, and that's where it gets a little bit more tricky depending on how you've currently built your site, right? How do you kind of potentially deliver two different versions of these assets? And there's some simple strategies for migration there. I think we're still going to have to kind of work through a lot of the quirks as we move forward on this stuff. But the simplest thing you can do, and actually the thing that may hurt you the most is uh, domain sharding. So, you know, we mentioned the six connection limit uh, a few times now. We have this so-called best practice with domain sharding where we said, like, hey, well, that's six connections per origin. What the heck, right? I'll just have multiple origins. <laughs> and then I can open 12 or 18 or 24 connections, whatever, right? And uh, that actually hurts performance quite a bit with HTTP2 because HTTP2 kind of tries to go over one connection and get the best performance out of that one connection. So if there's only one thing you can do is just undo some of the domain charting. In practice, most sites overextend themselves with domain charting. They actually hurt themselves in the process anyway. So if you just disable that, you're probably on, on track to, to have kind of a well-performing site in both. That's a very simple strategy. So... It's interesting because it sounds like our current best practices are kind of backwards from what we're going to be moving to. So it does seem like that makes it hard during the transition period, knowing which set of strategies we're so supposed to play to. And it almost sounds like it's going to have to be both for a little while. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I may be making it sound a lot more complicated than it actually is. The way I think about it, to be quite honest, is I just can, I can stop doing things I don't like doing. So things like concatenating files and doing all that other stuff. Like you just take out the Rails pipeline and you're done. <laughs> well, sure well, that sounds people, like a win. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people would like to do that for different reasons. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it, so, it, Ilya, I. I'd like to talk a little bit more, I mean, you know, we've, we've skirted around this issue a bit, but talk a little bit more about the web developer experience. Cause we've been talking about how some optimizations for, you know, one, one 
aren't great. I'm really curious about if HTTP2 has any kind of direct support for XML HTTP request because you know those things uh, you know get used differently from the the typical you know load a page request. Right. So uh, what we're changing in HTTP2 is just how the data kind of flows on the wire. It doesn't actually change the semantics. So for uh, for XHRs, it's actually it's it's no different, right? It's just another okay. HTTP request as far as we're concerned. So that shouldn't be affected. That said, uh, there are some interesting other benefits. So, for example, with XHR, let's say you're doing something like long polling, right? Like you've opened a request to your yeah. server and you're just waiting to, to get an update. One of the issues with that, with HTTP1, is you've now occupied that connection, mm-hmm. right? And you can't use it for anything else. So, in fact, you can, you can actually run the kind of a self-inflicted DOS attack on yourself. Like if you open six hanging connections to your origin, and then you try to fetch anything, let's say an image asset, you can't. Right? It'll just hang until one of those connections becomes available. Uh, the cool thing with HTTP2 is we can actually uh, multiplex as many requests as we want. So you can open 50 uh, hanging gets or you know, use server-sent events or even transport WebSockets over, all, over the same connection. So you just don't have to worry about those limitations, which is a nice win. Yeah. That, that's cool. It seems like some sort of like host aliasing thing could be really helpful for bridging the transition from one one where you do all the um, all the domain sharding stuff. That if you could you know put a meta tag or header or something that says, oh you know if you're getting assets dot you know Google dot com you know oh we'll just map that to Google dot com for HTTP two o. Yeah, that's that's certainly something that you could. Uh, yeah you could experiment with. So actually this this brings up a good point, which is how do you even know whether you're running over HTTP one or you know, speedy or HTTP two for that matter? You look in the and, header, right? Yes. <laughs> you can't, it's binary. <laughs> <laughs> well, by by the time you get it in your browser or your clients, you know, you'll you'll have your uh, hash map of header keys and values. So that that that's fine. But the way the actual upgrade is done today is over um, it's negotiated in the TLS handshake. So this is kind of an interesting side point, actually. In practice, there are two ports open on a web today, 80 and 443, right? Uh, there's the encrypted HTTP, and then there's port 80. Uh, for various reasons, most of the other ports are closed. You know, like you have corporate or private firewalls, you have routers and all that kind of stuff. So the, the, those are kind of the two ports that you can deploy stuff over without trying to reinvent the web and like upgrade all the infrastructure. The second case, uh, or the second issue now is like, okay, great, but, but 80 and 443 are already being used for other things. So what if we try to run this new protocol over port 80? Well, in most cases, it turns out to work pretty well, but about 20% of the time, the connection just randomly fails. And usually what happens is you kind of have <laughs> these uh, very uh, helpful proxies or intermediaries in between, uh, which look at the data stream, and for various reasons, like maybe a caching proxy, or maybe you know sc- scanning for malware, and we'll look at this protocol and, and be like, hey, this doesn't feel like HTTP 1.1 because that's what I've been taught to analyze. So this is a bad thing. I'm just going to close the connection. And in practice, this is a huge issue, uh, right? Because like if 20% of your connections just randomly fail, that's not a very useful web service. And uh, you know, like even antivirus software does that quite a bit. So if you run antivirus software on your machine, it'll just look, inspect all the traffic or create and be like, that's it, it's closed. And by the way, this is the same problem with WebSockets. Right? If, if you ever tried deploying WebSockets, especially like in mobile context, 
you'll know that you need to deploy it over HCPS. It's exactly for this reason, because there's all these intermediaries which kind of get in the way and just mess with your data. So to deploy HCP2, practically speaking, you'll be deploying it over TLS, which kind of creates this end-to-end encrypted tunnel and cuts out the intermediaries. And then during the TLS handshake, you can actually negotiate. We have a new extension, next protocol negotiation for Speedy, where you uh, declare like, hey, I support HTTP2, and then the server acknowledges that and says, great, we'll speak HTTP2. So we don't have to incur that extra round trip to kind of negotiate the protocol. So by the time the connection is established, basically, you already know which protocol you want to speak. And then at the server level, you can make decisions as well, like which assets I'm going to serve. So listening to you describe that, that sounds like that would have a huge impact on intermediate caches. Uh, to, to some degree, right? To, to transparent caches, specifically. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so like if some, if somebody just wanted to run Varnish, that would, you know, it would be completely different how that worked. Yeah, yeah, yes. how, you know, how do, how do you cache a fragment of this, you know, binary frame chunk? Right, so for, for most, uh, for most sites that, uh, kind of have a caching tier, right, uh, today, if you're doing TLS, you'll have to have something that terminates TLS to begin with. Yeah. Right, so that, that'll be your load balancer, or maybe running HA proxy, or Nginx, what have you. It'll terminate the TLS connection. And then, uh, it, what you do after that is kind of your own business. You can talk to any cache that you want. Uh, same thing applies to a CDN, right? So if you're, if you're using a CDN to serve content over HTTPS, uh, basically you have to give them your certificate and, you know, they will terminate that connection such that they can actually look at what the client is requesting and then serve up the right asset. So that really doesn't change. Uh, the question, uh, more so is like, w- what if there was an, intermediate cache, right? If my carrier deployed a cache, that's just transparently doing stuff uh, with this content. And that's where, and like, that, that therein is a problem, right? Because some of those caches actually do things that we don't want to the protocol. So yes, uh, they, they will be affected. Okay. So what other uh, sort of web developer changes do we need to think about? Uh, let's see. So we talked about a couple of little, a couple of things. So we have we talked about multiplexing, the fact that you can right. send many different requests. Uh, another cool feature with HTTP two is server push. So uh, the idea here is you can send multiple responses to one request, and that sounds wow. a little cra- and that sounds a little <laughs> crazy. It's like asking a question of our panel, and we all have our answers, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So it, it sounds a little crazy, but I, I'm actually gonna make the argument that you're already using that today, and that's called inlining. Uh, what you're doing with inlining is you're basically saying, look, this is like a small asset, whatever it may be, an image, you know, basically foreign code that, or some little snippet of JavaScript or what have you. Don't ask me for it. I'm just going to give you, give it to you right in the page, and I'm going to push it to you, right? So that's effectively is server push. Whenever you inline a resource today, that's server push. The trouble with inlining is it becomes part of that page. So if you're trying to inline like a small little icon, now you have to inline it on every single page, which of course just adds extra weight to every page. So with push, you can actually say, well, it's basically like inlining, but you can push it as an individual resource. It'll get cached by the browser as if you made that request. And then uh, you just reference it as a regular request. So the workflow would be, uh, you know, I send a request for index.html and the browser says, great, here's your file. And by the way, I know you, you're going to need the style sheet and these other three files. So I'm just letting you know right now that I'm going to send them to you. So don't ask them for it, which is uh, pretty neat. What about things like uh, streaming 
and stuff. Uh, I think that is kind of a good example of where HTTP one is super, super bolted on, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it makes, so we already kind of talked about the, the XHR case, right? Where uh, you could, you run into issues with the long hanging get. With HTTP2, that's basically addressed. But then some of the other issues, I guess, you know, streaming, like I'm assuming you're talking about XHR streaming, for example, that really doesn't exist. And that's more limit, limitation of the XML HTTP request API than it is of the HTTP protocol today. And I know there's a bunch of work to actually address that, to kind of add new APIs that will enable that. But of course, then sending that over HTTP2 will also make it much more efficient uh, as well. Uh, let's see, what, what else is there? Uh, we have header compression, which is uh, also quite nice in HTTP2. So it turns out that you know we send quite a bit of uh, header metadata for every HTTP request. That's actually one of the issues, uh, one of the reasons why a lot of people go to their own protocol on the back end, you know, when they run the stuff at scale. Uh, turns out that an average request on the web today adds about 800 bytes of headers. That's including kind of request and response. And then if you add cookies, then, you know, all bets are off because you can be in well over kilobytes or multiple kilobytes of data. And that's kind of unfortunate because uh, if you think about it, more and more so we're building apps which are just sending small requests, like here's a little JSON packet of an update that I did, right? Or here's an up- or a new message from whatever my chat application. And that's like 30 bytes of JSON data. And then we wrap it with 800 bytes of HTTP header metadata. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, well, something went wrong there, right? So with HTTP2, there's header compression, which is to say we can avoid sending the metadata that uh, we've sent before. So basically, we kind of keep state on both ends. And we, you know, if nothing has changed, like, for example, your user agent, like we send that on every single HTTP request. How often does your user agent change between requests? <laughs> like, honestly, you never right? know when you might need to switch browsers mid-site, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Midway while you're requesting all the assets, right? So, like, uh, you know, a simple optimization would be to say, like, hey, I sent you this a user agent header at the beginning of the connection. Just assume that that's the user agent that I'm using. And then if it changes, I'll let you know. But otherwise, just assume that it's the same, right? So I don't have to transmit that data. So uh, it significantly reduces the overhead of HTTP as well. So actually, in the best case, if you're just kind of stuck in a loop and you're just re-requesting the same resource, the actual overhead of making each peer request goes down from like 800 bytes to, I think, 8 or 10. So it's a factor of 100, uh, which makes it obviously a lot more efficient. I mean, we're, we're kind of in the WebSockets territory of just very little overhead for each and every message. Wow. Okay, so how does this interact with browser development? I mean, obviously, you need support for new protocols in browsers. Mm-hmm. You know, is the browser development community embracing this? Are they pushing back? Are they, you know, what's going yeah, on? So, yeah, so I think we actually have very good uh, progress there. So as of today, Chrome supports Speedy, which is kind of the experimental version implementation of it. Uh, we actually have an HTTP2 implementation as well. Uh, it's under a flag. It's just that, you know, there's, practically speaking, there are no servers in Atrium today that will speak to you in that protocol. But if you want to test it locally, uh, you can. Firefox also has uh, Speedy and HTTP2 implemented. The IE IE is going to have it next week, right? Well, actually, IE 11 supports Speedy. Wow, that's so, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, so, oh my god, uh, Martin Thompson, who is the editor of the spec, is actually at Microsoft. That's awesome. That's really great. 
Yeah. So um, I think we're, we're well on track, and you know, be, because the you know the, the speedy and HP two protocols are not exactly the same, like they're always a little bit kind of out of tune because one gets ahead and then one falls behind and all the rest, but they're very similar. So by the time we finish, you know, in air quotes, finish HP two uh, spec. Uh, we'll already have kind of a well-implemented version in most browsers, and then just a small delta to update it. And you know, if, if all goes well, we should actually like I'm hoping we will see this in production in 2014, which is a pretty aggressive timeline if you think about it. That is. Wait, um, what do you think will be the? I mean, so obviously HTTP one and one dot one are not going away like any time in the near future slash right. ever. I mean, how, how soon do you think we'll see sites switching over? I mean, probably, you know, the bigger sites, I think, would switch sooner, probably, because they have more to gain, maybe? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, as we said at the beginning, actually, even HTTP 0.9 is still supported by some servers. I'm not sure if there are any clients that actually use that, but, you know, chances are we'll still have HTTP 1.1, one, uh, you know, in like, for another decade at least. And the question is, like, is there enough of a benefit uh, to most sites to make the switch? And uh, I'm hoping the answer is yes. Uh, we actually just recently ran some uh, stats on a bunch of Google services which are using Speedy, and we compared it to just a regular Speed one and we're seeing anywhere between kind of 20 to 40 percent reduction in latency of the actual page load times. So those are significant wins, right? Like that's that's something I can take to other Google Teams or, or projects and say, like, hey, you should enable Speedy because uh, it's going to make your pages faster. And you know, if if those wins are big and uh, good enough, then I think that kind of makes it simple. Uh, the other problem, of course, is also just having server support. So you know, how easy does Apache and Nginx and all the other infrastructure that you have allow you to upgrade to that? Right, because there's certain issues or just implementation that you, that you need to do there, and uh, Nginx actually has a speedy implementation today. So if you if you're using uh, a latest version, it's literally just a matter of enabling a couple of config flags. Same thing for Apache, and then you know if you're running kind of custom hardware or other things, that's where you may have to wait a little bit just for your vendor to integrate support. That said, you know I know that like. F5 and a lot of other vendors already have products that support speed. So, you know, there's definitely some adoption curve in there. Uh, but I think the, at least the current numbers that we have show that there's enough of a performance win such that it is, it is a compelling argument to actually take to your team. And it actually doesn't require that much. You're basically saying like, look, we're just going to enable this. All of our existing applications just got to work on, over it just fine. And then after you enable it, you can start thinking about like, what can I do? to take advantage of some of these new features. Like, how do I make it go even faster? Gotcha. So, in the beginning, turn it on and and everything should be good. And then going forward, you know, you re-architect to favor that strategy, basically, and you should get bigger wins, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, one of the things I'm really interested in is maybe not web web developments, but you know, coming back to our kind of so architectures and all that kind of stuff, uh, in Rubyland, when you look at the HTTP libraries that are available and that we use today, most of them, frankly, have a terrible API for exposing things like multiplexing and pipelining and all of these things. And like the typical request that we make is like, okay, net HTTP, here's a URL, and I get my response, and I basically map to a new connection, right? And now we need to kind of change all those interfaces to 
and educate developers. So like, hey, it's a good thing to reuse your connections. You don't have these limitations anymore. And how do we go about updating all of those client libraries or just designing new APIs around it? Uh, that's, if anything, I see as kind of a, a more challenging problem. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty significant. I mean, every everything that's architected that way, you know, it sounds like, unfortunately, we need changes at basically every layer layer in between, you know, client and server. And that's a lot of things to change. You know, it's like, if tomorrow we had a better gasoline, but it required changes in all gas stations and all cars, you know, it's a, it's a big problem, <laughs> you know. Yeah, maybe the, the one difference here would be that that same gasoline can still work in the old cars, right? So it'll, it'll still run your old car. But then you can ask questions like, what can I do to make it run better? Right. So it, it's still like it, it doesn't mean that you need to get an entirely new car. The, the stuff which we're trying to make the upgrade process as simple as possible. Like, how do we negotiate which protocol are you going to use? And, you know, all the same applications still run over it and there's kind of no changes there. Yep. All right. Well, I think we've uh, kind of uh, hit our time limit. I'm sure there's a lot more to talk about. If people want to know more about HTTP2 and keep track of what's going on with Speedy and with the protocol, what what are the best ways to do that? Is there a mailing list or blog articles yep. or what? Yep. So there is, uh, if, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, there is the IETF HTTP working group. It's just, if you search for HTTP-WG, so that's the working group, you can look at the mail archives, you can join the mailing list, and there's lots of kind of ongoing discussions about all of this stuff. Uh, if you really want to get into it, if you're looking for maybe a deeper dive to kind of understand what this stuff is all about, this is a shameless plug. I actually have a, a book out with O'Reilly called High Performance Browser Networking. And uh, it's actually available online and free. And I have an entire chapter on HTTP2. So if you go to HP, uh, hpbn.co, uh, you can actually just pull it up there and kind of read more about it. All right, cool. Well, then... Yeah, so, so, so I have one last question. It's okay. not about HTTP 2.0 per se, but I think it's it's related. And oh yeah, that's it's about the um, extensible web manifesto. So mm-hmm. I, I assume you're familiar with that. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this as a pick or just talk to you about it, and I think I wanted to hear what you wanted to say about it. Um, so this looks like a much more sensible way to approach getting features into web applications. You know, you start with them essentially as JavaScript implementations, prove them out there, and then when the web community has standardized the API to those things, then you turn them into into things supported directly in the browser. You know, that that's my my TLDR on that. So so I'm curious to know, like, is this something that browser creators are jumping on top of, they like the approach? Is it something that Google is interested in as a way to advance the technology? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I can't speak on behalf of all the kind of browser developers, but I work sure. quite closely with, 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 with Chrome, and I know that there's a lot of interest in that. And you're seeing that in a lot of the kind of new standards that are being developed, things mm-hmm. like web components and other things, which, you know, deserve their own show. Uh, sure. But kind of the way I think about it is... There is a component that you described, but it's also, to me, about exposing low-level primitives uh, that allow you to build your own abstractions, higher-level abstractions, as opposed to just giving you kind of the end API, right? Uh, right. Instead of giving you, like, here's an, I don't know, awesome Q 
camera filter effect, right? And we give you five instead of just say, well, here's access to the raw camera feed. You have CSS, you have WebGL, uh, go nuts, right? And if we find later that everybody's using the same effect, great. We'll just take that and provide it as a native thing as such that you don't have to do that. I mean, actually a great example of, uh, things like that is, you know, a lot of the changes that even jQuery brought about, right? Like yeah. working with DOM was a pain in the butt. Uh, jQuery showed us that it doesn't have to be, at least less so. And we've made it easier by just kind of taking parts of it and uh, putting it directly into the browser. So I think that's, that's, cool. that's definitely uh, the direction that we, that we want to head. And, you know, I'm personally pushing for a whole bunch of things, which, you know, I think we need that are like that in a browser. Great. Cool. Okay. So that's it on that. All right. Well, uh, then let's go ahead and do the picks. Uh, Josh, it's just, Already talking. You want to start us off? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Great. So, hey, it's almost a new year, and everybody needs a printed calendar for their new year, right? <laughs> 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 Paper calendars. They're awesome. Uh, actually, uh, I am not getting into a swimsuit for you, Josh. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I prefer my pictures of nebulas and other celestial entities. So, I'm Pretty sure I've picked the astronomy picture of the day before, you know, the NASA website showing you awesome pictures of things related to space. And, the, you know, that's just asterisk, well, asterisk.apod.com. Uh, but the, they now have this, for the last couple of years, they've been doing a fan created calendar that is, you know, you know, 12 nice pictures of celestial phenomena and, you know, the little calendar grid beneath it with all sorts of like all the like meteor showers and things like that. So, and they have, and it's all nicely laid out in PDFs that you can just take it to, you know, Kinko's or wherever and print it out on, you know, spiral bound stuff and you have your own little flip calendar. So that looks really great. I'm going to be, you know, getting this one done soon so i can have something to put up in my bathroom <laughs> and, uh, uh okay so uh, wait a minute you keep a calendar in your bathroom i need something on the back door of the calendar right i mean of the nice. of the bathroom right yeah you, nice. you always need something there to look at <laughs> and then um and then i have a silly one and that's the blog of quote unnecessary unquote quotations <laughs> And, uh, and this is great. It's a lot of funny pictures of people abusing one of the best punctuation marks there is. So that's it for me. I, I haven't been doing much programming in the last week or two, so no programming picks. Okay. Right. I'm done. James, what are your picks? First, I, I talked recently about, you know, problems in gender diversity in our field and stuff like that and how we all need to be, I think, increasing our awareness on that. Um, there was a really great write-up of the recent Node.js issue by Joint, uh, the company that sponsors Node.js. Uh, it's really short. You can read through it quick. Super insightful as far as, like, why this is a problem and how we should be thinking about this and stuff. So I'm recommending everybody read this because it's a great write-up. Um, so that's my first pick. And then, uh, second, I've been playing a bunch of games, uh, lately, and, um, I'm finding some pretty good stuff. One of those is Papers, Please. And if you have not played this game, you absolutely have to. It is fun how fast this game can turn you into a horrible person, which is always interesting. You're a, uh, paper checker at, like, a customs checkpoint. 
and checking passports and tickets and uh, various complications. And you have to do so many a day to make money and you're keeping track of your family and you end up not being able to pay your heat or whatever if you don't do enough. Then your kids get sick and you start thinking, I need to just get this person through here as quick as possible. It's amazing how how quickly it gets you to start reassessing these things and stuff. So uh, it's really a total blast. Papers, please. It's on Steam. Those are my picks. All right. Avdi, what are your picks? So I'm going to pick something topical, and that is Ilya's blog. I have been following your blog for years and years, and it has always been one of my very, very favorites. I want to thank you for the the years of amazing articles. Um, These articles are always in-depth on technical topics. They're beautifully illustrated. They have, you know, great code samples, and they're just incredibly insightful. I have learned so much from from this blog over the years. It's it's igvita.com, and gosh, archives go all the way back to, what, 2005, it looks like. So, yeah, I'll put the URL for that in the show notes. That blog was a big part of why uh, Ilya's a Ruby hero. Yeah, that blog is amazing, especially event machine stuff and things like that. It's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, and um, I guess, okay, I'll I'll pick something fun. Um, My current Netflix sort of brainless guilty pleasure is the show Revenge, which is pretty much just about somebody getting back at people. And it's just like good brainless schadenfreude fun. Awesome. All right. I've got a couple of picks. My first pick is, and I know it's been picked on the show before, but I've really gotten into uh, The Walking Dead. Um, it's not something that helps me unwind at night. Well, it helps me unwind, but it doesn't help me go to sleep like some of the other shows that I watch sometimes in the evening. But uh, anyway, really enjoying the show. I've just been buried with work, so I really don't have any great programming picks. But I have been listening to audiobooks. And one of the books that I've been listening to is Duct Tape Marketing by Jim Jantz. So if you're uh, if you're in business for yourself and you're looking for something that can kind of uh, guide you through the process of setting up your marketing, then that's a really terrific book. And uh, those are my picks. Uh, Elia, what are your picks? So Duct Tape Marketing is actually a great book. I really, really enjoy that. My picks, let's see. Um, actually, I have three. I guess one, I'll cheat on. So I already mentioned it before. Um, I do have this new book out called High Performance Browser Networking. So if you like my blog, chances are you may like this one as well. So do check it out. Uh, that's at hpbn.co. Then the second one, actually, a book I just finished reading uh, just recently, which was really interesting, called Exploding the Phone by Phil Lapsley, which basically takes you through the history of AT&T and uh, phone freaking, which is something that I, to be quite, quite honest, I didn't know much about, certainly familiar with the term, but just this is a very well-researched history of how it came to be, what they were doing, and kind of the early explorers of, of this network, plus all the kind of legal repercussions that happened and, and all the rest. So really interesting read. And then the last one, which is just good comic relief, you know, we never have a, <laughs> a long day and you need a break, uh, thecodinglog.com. Yeah, it's a really awesome Tumblr blog of basically just like animated GIFs with annotations for like programmers <laughs> for, you know, what happens when an in- intern joins your team to how do you solve bugs and all the rest. Uh, <laughs> and it never, never fails to give me a good laugh when I need one. So that's, that's definitely a good place to check out. And I think that's it. All right, cool. Well, before we wrap up, I want to remind you of our book club book. We're reading, uh, financial, or financial. 
Financial programming. Financial awesome. programming. It's going to be an awesome episode. <laughs> yeah, James is going to tell us how he gets rich. No, it's uh, functional programming for the object-oriented programmer. Or as David calls it, F-poop. Yeah, well, you were talking about the bathroom earlier, so... <laughs> Well, you know, David's not on the show. Somebody has to stand in for him. <laughs> in his defense, that that is the acronym. I know. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, we'll have links in the show notes and uh, I believe a discount code. So go hey, check hey, it out. Hey, 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 let's plug Parlay, too. We haven't done that in a while. Go for it. Plug away. Yeah, so uh, for, for those not in on it, uh, Parlay is the uh, Ruby Rogues private uh, discussion group. And uh, we moved it from an email list to a, a discourse uh, site. So it's you know, it has a lot of great features for managing conversations and stuff. And it's just you can have conversations with the rogues and other listeners about stuff on the show and other random things. Uh, we have job postings. We have you know all sorts of crazy technology conversations. And we have uh, many of our, our guest rogues uh, there available for discussion, too. So... And Ilya, I hope you come check it out too. And by the way, it's private and, uh, you pay anywhere from 10 bucks a year to 50 bucks a month at your, you know, whatever you want. And, uh, that's a way for supporting the podcast. Done with plug. Another way to support the podcast is go buy a Ruby Rhodes shirt. Oh my God. We yes. have <laughs> our shirt campaign up. Uh, we got an awesome design, uh, from Beth Morris over at Little Wines. Um, and, we're super, super in love with it. They are awesome looking shirts. You absolutely need to wear one. So go check it out. Buy a shirt. We'll have a link in the show notes. All right. I think that's it. We'll catch you all next week. <laughs>